right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the Honest Offense podcast today. I am joined by Professor Michael Phillips. Professor Phillips is a professor of history who taught at Texas's Collin College until the college recently declined to renew his contract. He's just finishing out his contract now. He'll be finishing up at the college next week. Professor Phillips argues that he was fired for exercising his constitutionally protected free speech right to criticize the college's COVID policies. He's currently suing Collin College, its president, and other university officials, and he is being he is being represented by our friends at the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Professor Phillips, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I always like to start, I'm, I'm curious to hear about people's backgrounds, what they were like growing up and how that led into who they are now. And especially, I've, I've talked to probably about a dozen professors now at this point who have been in a similar position to you. And professors always fascinate me because I assume growing up, you had to be a good student. So you had to, you had to play into the system to an extent, but to be someone who's willing to speak out and to go through what you've gone through, you had to also have an independent streak. So I'm curious how much of that uh, was in you from childhood? Well, uh, college was a new thing to my branch of the family. Uh, my, on my mother's side, my grandmother was born in the 1890s, actually, and her father died when she was seven. She had to drop out of school in New Orleans when she was, uh, you know, just seven years old, or when she was in fifth grade, rather. She, um, so she, you know, left the education system very early. Um, on my father's side, he was in an orphanage, and uh, his mother had to leave him there when uh, his father left him, and he grew up in a Catholic orphanage, and uh, he signed up for the military when he was 17. He was trying to get into World War II. He had to get a general equivalency degree for his high school diploma. And he didn't go to college until after he came back from his second tour of duty in Vietnam. He was in uh, the Korean War and two, two duty, tours of duty in Vietnam as a Marine. And uh, one of the things he wanted to do, he wanted to study criminology. He got an associate's degree. And uh, that's he never built a career on that, but I think it was just a big thing for him to have the college experience when he got back from the war. Um, so I didn't come from a family of uh, college students, and I became a journalist uh, after I graduated from the University of Texas at Arlington. Uh, I worked for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram for a while. Uh, I was uh, covering crime in the city at a point where there was a major epidemic uh, of drugs in inner cities across America. Uh, high, high homicide rate. As I recall, Fort Worth per capita had the highest murder rate in the country. And uh, while I was covering that beat as a reporter, I just realized uh, in, on an instinctual level, because I hadn't studied it as a scholar, uh, the racism of that war on drugs that took place under Reagan. And uh, I began to realize, uh, become really aware of how my newspaper and the media generally depicted people of color, black people, brown people. And it bothered me enough that I thought this merits further study. And I didn't feel like I could do it as a journalist. And so I ended up, uh, I just got married. Uh, uh, I, I decided to go to grad school in California, the University of California, Riverside, where my wife was teaching uh, high school students. Uh, we ended up uh, going back to Texas when I got admitted to the doctorate program in, at the University of Texas. And so I wrote a dissertation about Dallas, which is a city that has had tremendous importance to the country economically, but uh, has not been covered by historians to any degree. And I grew up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, so I was fascinated. You know, why was there no great history book on Dallas, like it was on New York or Los Angeles or Chicago? given its significance uh, culturally, economically, and so on. So that led to my book, White Metropolis, which is about Dallas and the history of race relations there and the, the history of white supremacy in that city. And uh, I got hired at Collin College uh, 14 years ago. And uh, you know, my book won an award 
uh, uh, it was named one of the best books in uh, Texas on Texas history uh, back in 2007. Uh, I've won grants. I've, I've been acclaimed. Uh, and I'm considered a, a major expert on racial ideology in this country. So I really felt like I had built a career and a reputation that I hoped would provide some security, even though at our college, we don't have tenure. We have no, we have three-year contracts, but the college attitude has always been that those are pretty loose and that you can be or terminated, as the college puts it, for any reason or no reason. But nevertheless, I was hoping that the reputation and the achievements and my contributions to college would uh, give me uh, some security, and I'm a big advocate of guaranteeing job protections for all employees. But it's especially important in, in education because your ability to educate depends on protection of First Amendment rights. I'm curious. I actually want to go back to, to your book on Dallas. Why do you think there wasn't a history on Dallas that had been written? Because it's true that when you look at population size, Dallas is, is up there as one of the major cities in the U.S., but you don't hear about it. You don't see it depicted in media the way you do New York, L.A., Chicago, like you said, or, or D.C. Or, or Miami or Boston even. What, what, what do you think was missing? Well, um, I think we're a victim of the uh, mythology uh, Texans themselves have spun, uh, where they, uh, you know, it, there's only a tiny slice of Texas history that's involved with the cattle drives and cowboys and, uh, 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 uh Dallas itself, the leadership really promoted the idea that Dallas was a place where basically Nothing happened other than good governance and, you know, solid business sense and, you know, solid leadership. It, it was actually embarrassed by the Kennedy assassination because it had promoted this idea. This is a quiet, safe place to invest money. We never had the kind of cartoon villains that existed in the Deep South, like, uh, you know, Sheriff Clark, you know, uh, the, the, those types of uh, law enforcement uh, figures who, uh, 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 Bull Connor, that type. Uh, we didn't have the, the noticed bombings, uh, you know, of churches and neighborhoods that happened during the, the 60s. And, you know, it, but Dallas did have its bombings. Uh, there were a wave of bombings of houses and formerly all white neighborhoods that were being sold to black people in 1940, another wave in 1950, 1951. But television was not so much of a thing back then. You know, very tiny number of people owned TV sets, 1950, 1951. So Dallas flew under the radar. Uh, we didn't have the confrontation of civil rights demonstrators with fire hoses, police dogs. So the drama elsewhere made Dallas seem less important. And then when Dallas did catch the world's attention in a negative way, it was the Kennedy assassination. That obliterated any other history. Right. But Dallas is much more complex. It's more violent than people think. One, uh, 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 it's really shocking. We just, I was part of a group that set up a, a, a lynching memorial in Dallas. There was a lynching in downtown Dallas. Uh, a man was dragged from the second story of a courthouse onto the street and dragged by car. And uh, this is in uh, 1910. And that a photograph of that lynching became a postcard. And it, you can you find it, you know, uh, on the internet. Uh, uh, he, there was a arch the Elks Club built over one of the streets in downtown Dallas. He's dangling from that arch. Uh, that is not uh, that's not uh, unusual in Dallas history. And per capita, Dallas had the largest. Klan chapter in the United States when the Klan came back in the 1920s. The Klan completely ran the city. Uh, but it's really, uh, it's interesting. I think that Dallas, when we got to the modern media era, was much more clever, clever at using soft power when it was appropriate. Uh, uh, and, a, you know, basically uh, uh, working with African-American leaders towards symbolic integration. Uh, and uh, 
and of course, you know, the football team played a major role in hiding what was going on, on the surface. The Cowboys, uh, primetime soap, soap opera in the 1980s, they were much craftier at, at their public image. Uh, one that hid a lot of ugliness and a lot of tension and a lot of fear. So it's a fascinating story. So, uh, yeah, people have been reading my book for 14 years, I think, because of it, because there's something there when people dig under the surface. And were you doing all this research while you were at Collin or was this before? This was this was my dissertation at the University of Texas at Austin, and uh, it was published the year I was hired. And since then, I've contributed to another of books, a uh, number of books, and uh, I'm working on a project right now uncovering the history of the eugenics movement in Texas, which is also something that's not been written about. Uh, uh, you know, the Texas mythology, again, blots out everything. Uh, so, and I also think, by the way, I think another factor is I think the rest of the country resents Texas a lot because we've exported our right-wing politics. <laughs> I think that, uh, yeah, we had this horror show competition between Greg Abbott in Texas and Ron DeSantis in Florida. And yeah, people have had to deal with political figures like Tom DeLay and uh, Rick Perry and people like that. And I just think the major media centers look at Texas politics with a certain degree of horrified fascination, <laughs> but they don't want to dig too much under the surface because they're afraid of what they'll find. And I think it's affected academia. I, th I think that uh, there's just a sense that uh, it's, it's just a, uh, you know, either, either it's uh, romantic or, or it's dystopian, but uh, for whatever reason, it scared people away. From what I hear from my friends in Austin, it sounds like the left wing is starting to, to hit back a little in the last couple of years, at least. Yeah, no, I mean, I think Texas is ever, that's the thing about Texas. If you're, you know, if you're, you're anywhere left of center from moderate Democrat to the actual left, um, that it's ever on the verge of changing, but it never quite gets there. And there's a lot of hope being banked on the fact that, for instance, Californians are moving here. But the question is, which Californians? I lived in California uh, in the high desert when I was getting my master's degree. And uh, there are considerable parts of the state that are extraordinarily right wing. And I lived in one of them. It's called the high desert. But uh, you know, famously, Nixon came from California. Reagan came from California. And I, I wonder if a lot of the Californians moving here are those particular Californians. Uh, 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 people are, and it's funny because uh, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, political sloganeering about, you know, uh, about whether, you know, that Texas wants to become California. And, uh, yeah, right-wingers tend to attack that. But they may actually benefit from that migration. In what way? The right wing, yeah. Because if the if the it's the conservative Californians oh, who are moving right. here, then they add to their numbers. Right, right. I see what you're saying. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, yeah. and I want to get into the, the politics of all that because I I think that plays into a lot of what what's happened with you. But I want to I want to follow the timeline here. So you get you're you're at Collin College. How long were you there before you started having issues with the administration? So in 2015, the current president was hired. Um, the college has existed since 1985. Um, apparently, they were not successful in, uh, in my assessment, at drawing top-notch candidates for this position, even though it's an extraordinarily wealthy county. It's just north of Dallas, by the way. You have Dallas County, and then Collin County is right on top of it. Um, uh, this is a community, by the way, that... Uh, be, became really populous because of white flight from Dallas County, particularly in the city of Dallas. People moved out to towns like Plano. Uh, there's a town called Allen, Frisco, whatever, to get away from the integration of the schools. Very conservative. Uh, what's interesting is those conservatives then implemented these policies in terms of, of business taxes, you know, property taxes, et cetera, that were extremely business friendly, which drew international businesses that have diverse workforces. So, you know, we have multiple mosques here. We have Hindu temples. We have a Jain temple not far from here, just over the line in Dallas County. Um, 
I was at the University of Texas, which has 58,000 students uh, from 1995 to 2002 in the doctoral program. I would have these 300 student classes I would teach as a graduate student. And we might have three African-American students, not much, much, uh, not much larger number of Latinx students. Collin County or, and the, or Collin College is far more diverse than those schools were because it's cheaper. You, everyone, you know, a broader range of people can afford it. So anyway, so there was an opening for president, and we ended up hiring this man whose undergraduate degree was from an unaccredited school uh, in every state but California. It was headquartered in uh, the college, had a uh, campus in East Texas. Uh, its home base was in Pasadena, California. The state senator there got an accreditation within California for what was called Ambassador College, founded by a father-son team of evangelists, Herbert W. Armstrong and Gardner Ted Armstrong. They used to have TV shows, radio shows every day of the week. And amongst the teachings of the uh, the Worldwide Church of God was that Europeans were descended from the lost tribes of Israel. Therefore, we're the chosen people, you know, uh, Great Britain, the United States in particular, were going to control most of the world when Jesus came back. Uh, they prohibited interracial dating. Uh, the, yeah, the, I mean, the, these are some of the ideas taught at that church where this man got his undergraduate degree, and he worked there for years and years. So uh, when I heard about his making it to the final two list, I got concerned. I told faculty members, this is his background. You know, I don't know if he still holds on to these beliefs. I passed a dossier around by email to my peers. Uh, and when he got there and he was uh, making his presentation uh, to the faculty, I, I said, uh, I, I, I went up to him. I, saw, I spoke to him. And I said, so what are your feelings about interracial dating? Uh, do you believe that uh, the Catholic Church will be the vehicle through which the quote-unquote Antichrist will take over? The and I, all, these, all these questions. And um, he got annoyed. He waved me away. We got to fill out cards to rate the candidates. He said, go ahead, vote against me. So that happened. But then after he got picked, he emailed me. And and offered to work on a project about Juneteenth, which was you know originated in Texas, a celebration of emancipation of enslaved people in Texas. So it seems like we had patched things up, but what really started problems for me and for another faculty member who got fired was I became a leader of the movement to remove Confederate statues in Dallas. Uh, I had been concerned about that since I wrote my book, White Metropolis. Yeah, I referred to uh, black and white people living on the same world but di on different planets, you know, in terms of how they remember the past. And I noted, you know, we had a Lee statue, Robert E. Lee statue in Dallas uh, that was at Lee Park in Dallas. Robert E. Lee never came here, by the way. Yeah, Texas was part of the Confederacy. He had no connections to Dallas. There was a 60-foot memorial by the Dallas Convention Center. We had schools all over Dallas named after people like Lee and Stonewall Jackson and so on. And it just seemed horrifying to me to imagine an African-American parent having explained to their child that they walk past these memorials, why people who enslaved them, you know, who trafficked their bodies and betrayed the country were being treated like heroes in a city that was barely existed. It was a tiny village when the, when the Confederacy existed. And so I, I got a group, uh, 99 of us uh, signed on the published version of the open letter that was published by the Dallas Morning News calling for the removal of the statues. And that's when my First Amendment uh, journey started. Uh, another professor signed it. We identified which institutions we're from because that's actually standard practice. Right. You see academics all the time addressing matters of public concern and they're identified with their institution. And so we were all a, a large group because my college 
actually was one of the biggest institutions of higher education in Dallas-Fort Worth in terms of numbers of signatories. We contributed a disproportionate number, more than Southern Methodist University, uh, University of North Texas, other major schools here. And we were marched in, we we're told that uh, uh, it violated policy because we mentioned where we worked. Of course, Google exists. I'm not sure why that would have been a, an issue. Uh, we were, I was told both by my provost, that's the head of the campus, we have several campuses, and uh, my co the college president I mentioned, Neil Mackin. Both of them said that uh, I might make the college look bad. And that for me was a revealing comment because the uh, what I said in response both times is I said, look bad to who? Uh, clearly, uh, I think most African-Americans aren't going to think that's a horrible thing I did, taking down the statues of enslavers. Uh, uh, a large, you know, two-thirds of Mexican territory was taken from Mexico uh, to expand slave states. That was the motive behind many of the people who, who you know, were part of the uh, Texas Revolution and then advocated the Mexican-American War. It, I'm, it's not going to look bad to them. I mean, I, so uh, white it, people of goodwill. I mean, it, it just seems strange. That it's such an odd thing to say, even even taking out that particular issue and the morality of that particular issue. It's just a, an odd thing to say to one of your professors that something that they're talking about can make the university look bad. I mean, that's the whole idea of a of a professor is you're supposed to be speaking on on whatever issues you're is in within your realm of expertise and and exactly it, it's not it's not about making the university look good or look bad it's it's about your your research and and your work and putting it out there it has nothing to do with with how it makes the university look and it's odd too because you would think that someone who was able to organize that effort and was give had several pages of the Dallas Morning News Sunday opinion section handed over him with this lengthy essay and all these prestigious people signing the open letters. That actually that makes the the college look good anyway because you know that I, I'm I, my opinions are taken that seriously. Right. Um, and so anyway, so several of us were subjected to uh, uh, these meetings with our provost. Um, then later on, uh, one of our students was Patrick Crucius, who drove across the state to El an El Paso Walmart with, uh, heavily armed and gunned down. I think, uh, at this point, 23 people died from that rampage. And, uh, he wrote a manifesto where he said he was stopping the Mexican invasion of the United States and of Texas. And he talked about the great replacement theory, which is that something kicked around by the far right around the world. It sparked a massacre in Australia, for instance, this idea of the great replacement. Um, and um, I already knew that this place was really oppressive towards free speech can, yeah. can we rewind but you know before before this mass so this massacre happened after the whole uh open letter yeah. issue what so what happened so so the, the provost came to you and said you're making the university look bad what did they take any other actions beyond that or what, what happened uh, after that other than other than give me a warning some people are made to sign a a a uh a, a letter or a document acknowledging that they had been read the policy that supposedly prohibited it. it didn't but they were interpreting as saying that you know we couldn't do it and so um so anyway so that that was it for then okay. uh, this will come up this will bubble up later okay uh for one of the other signatories of the letter you know i was a co-author she uh one of my colleagues was a signatory it said Suzanne Jones, Collin College. Right. So the Patrick Crucius massacre took place in El Paso. Um, because of my book on Dallas, White Metropolis, the Washington Post contacted me. They wanted an interview. Our college president had sent an email that it happened during the weekend. It was on a Saturday. He sent an email that Saturday afternoon direct all press inquiries to uh, uh, the co college PR person. Now, I thought that was a violation of the First Amendment, you know, and prohibiting uh, preemptively 
an expert talking about the area of his expertise. And this involved racism and racial violence, and that's my area of expertise. But I sought to comply with that. I got contacted by the Washington Post, and I told them, okay, I can't talk about Patrick Crucius. I never had him as a student anyway, and I can't talk about the massacres. Uh, I can talk about the history of racism in Dallas-Fort Worth which is what I wrote about, right? right. And uh, I, I certainly didn't interpret uh, the, the president's directive as prohibiting discussing the broader topic of racism in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I mean, that would be absurd, right? Right, right. you would think. Uh, and and uh, just just be clear, this is, Colin is a public college, so they are, they are bound yeah. by constitutional protections in a way Absolutely. that private colleges are not. Absolutely, the government cannot uh, prohibit employees from talking about matters of public concern. It's right. a public college. Absolutely, 100% public college. Um, so I gave an interview, and I gave a lengthy interview. I talked about white flight and the history of the suburbs in Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh, the only part that ended up in print and online was where I confirmed something the reporter asked about, which was... Uh, before the massacre, you know, many months before the massacre, there have been white supremacist flyers left all over all of our campuses where they're warning white women to not date black men, that black men were rapists and so on. And that happened in a lot of Dallas-Fort Worth colleges, but it happened in each of our campuses. And I confirmed that that happened. And in fact, she found it because I had been on the faculty council which is our governing body, and got a resolution passed by the faculty council condemning racism and saying that Colin College. And by the way, the president didn't accept the the resolution. Didn't say we're going to make any issue any kind of statement about that. But anyway, so um, I confirmed it. Then I got called into the my dean's office, and I got issued a formal discipline letter, uh, uh, or actually it was, it was a, a warning in a coaching form saying that I had violated the president's directive. Each time these things have happened, I've mentioned the First Amendment. I said, I'm covered by this constitutionally. You're violating the law by doing this. You're violating legal precedent. But nevertheless, I got I got a uh, 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 discipline letter for that. Did you, did you get in touch? Did you get in touch with any lawyers at that point, or or you were just not kinda... yet? Okay. Not yet. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, so then we go ahead to uh, the year 2020, which was. So, but uh, so so they uh, b before we fast forward. So you know they issue you this this disciplinary warning, and you, you say you're you know you're violating the First Amendment. They they just ignore it, and then do you just kind of move on? Or what, what what? How did that resolve? Um, I was just told to to. Uh, to be very cautious about who I spoke to with the press and that I was having, I had problems supposedly following college policy. Okay. Which again was unconstitutional. Right. So we had a chain of events. We had COVID, we had COVID shutdowns. Um, and then in 2020, during the vice presidential debate, um, we had a professor at the college named Laura Burnett. He was live tweeting during the vice presidential debate. And at one point she got annoyed by the fact that Pence kept interrupting Kamala Harris uh, speaking over her. And she tweeted, he needs to shut his demon little mouth. And this was on her private Twitter page. No mention, the college isn't even mentioned on the page and she, she doesn't mention she works there. The president apparently got a uh, text from a local state legislator saying, uh, asking, does Laura Burnett work at the college? Is she paid for? Is her salary paid by taxpayer money? And Mackin uh, uh, texted back to him, yes, I'm aware of the situation. I'm, I'm, I'm looking into it. I'm handling it. Okay. And then he issues to the entire, co every college employee. This denunciation of this tweet, calling it vile, ill-considered, say he said we are not going to make our uh, our personnel decisions out in public, but he's clearly implying she's going to be fired. So, 
that's when I con I first sent my email to to uh, to fire is because I was deeply worried about that particular um, uh, situation, and um, you know I, I felt really like this was uh, I was in peril. Um, so when that happened, um, uh, he ended up firing her over the the tweet. That, that single tweet. Yeah, and she was in a probationary period. First three years, you only get one-year contracts. And so we got to uh, that situation, uh, uh, and she, her contract was not renewed. Then it, then we had this issue because we were trying to start a local of the Texas Faculty Association. And uh, the, uh, uh, the person who was spearheading the drive became the president actually asked the administration, can you, uh, can I mention during the faculty council meeting that we have this new local? She didn't even have to ask the permission, but she did. And the question was relayed to the administration. The administration notes said, no, you can't mention anything to do with unions, can't come up with a faculty council meeting. And then apparently what they did is, uh, because she, her name had been listed as a contact for the state Texas Faculty Association. This is the person at Collin College. They found that website, demanded she take her name down and the college name down. Then they went back and found she had signed my Confederate open monuments open letter. And so in January, they tell her she's fired for those two reasons. And they, they explicitly said part of yeah. part of why she was fired was signing that letter. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. And then finally, uh, we had another professor, Audra Haslip, who uh, had pushed and pushed for a COVID dashboard. She had pushed for the college to consider more in per, or more online classes as an option. Uh, they initially they didn't give us any option to ask for medical exemptions. Eventually, that did happen, but not at first. You know, and our president was really pushing. He was saying things like. Masks are only 10% uh, uh, effective. No, that's false. Uh, he said that um, uh, uh, the pandemic was clearly overblown, being exaggerated by the media. So she was alarmed at his COVID response. And then publicly, publicly in inter interviews, she said, we need to have a, a dashboard. And she criticized the college's COVID policies. That got her fired. And so I made a habit of every board meeting last year speaking up for my colleagues and speaking up for violations of that. And by the way, also the Chronicle of Higher Education did a report on our college because of these firings. We became infamous. They revealed that the president had made a racist joke about black deans saying he couldn't tell them apart from each other. Uh, he made uh, his predecessor, who was Jewish, the previous president, and at a college event, he put a bowl on his head like it was a yarmulke and said, hey, look, I'm Kerry Israel, was the name of the previous president. So he was making jokes about Jews. He was he made a sexually charged joke. And and so I, I asked when there was going to be accountability for that, because no employee of the college would get away with that. And so. Finally, we get to this August. Uh, I'm returning to teaching in person for the first time since the COVID epidemic. I'm, I've been a diabetic since early childhood. I got pancreatitis, uh, so I had a medical exemption. But I went back to teach on in person. We got to uh, the very first meetings with faculty and administrators, and they imposed a gag rule on faculty mentioning mask. <laughs> and so our associate dean, who was brand new, didn't know my work, didn't know anything about me, put up a PowerPoint that said that uh, we can only, uh, we can't use any language referring to mask, uh, uh, recommending mask, suggesting mask uh, uh, to our students in person or in a syllabi, I, astonishing, right? You you couldn't you couldn't say I, I I think you probably should wear like like not requiring it, but just saying hey here's here's kind of what what I think about masks and and I I would recommend you wear one. You couldn't say that. 
Yeah, no, exactly. And the justification was Greg Abbott, the governor, had issued a, um, a directive banning mass mandates and banning uh, 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 you know, vaccination mandates. But in his executive order, he recommended masks. So Greg Abbott was violating his own order, I guess, according to Colin College. So, so, so the cause, the cause was was using the 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 governor's order saying there can't be a mandate to justify you preventing you from being able to recommend masks. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so I took a picture of the PowerPoint and a subsequent email saying we couldn't mention social distancing. I posted on Twitter and Facebook. Then I went to the, a board meeting talking about that. And I went ahead because I knew it was wrong. It was wrong morally, and it was wrong in terms of the law to do that. Uh, to, to, yeah, it's a violation of the First Amendment. I said, because I, I, when I first assignment was about the history of pandemics in North America since Columbus. And so it was part of the course to talk about pandemics. And I talk about how World War, after World War I, or at the end of World War I, 1918, 1919, uh, the, during the influenza pandemic, that people, there were anti-mask leagues in San Francisco and places like that. So it was in context. And I said, really, we're having people who need treatment, who are dying because they can't get treatment from diseases that aren't COVID because every hospital bed is filled with COVID. And I said, really think about the consequences. You don't do it. I'm not going to judge you if you <laughs> if you don't want to wear a mask. I'm not going to judge you. Uh, yeah, I, I don't like wearing a mask, so on. Uh, and I got called in and got told I was not being recommended for a contract renewal. And uh, I had to go through all this process to try to get my job back. There's a faculty body called the Council on And, and that, that, that initial, when they initially say you're not being renewed, what was the reason they gave for that? Did they give a reason? That I violated policy. So it had nothing, they, they didn't even try to couch it in, oh, your performance or, or you're getting poor reviews. It's specifically because they, of this, they, this mass They issue. couldn't. They couldn't. I had 14 years of excellent student reviews. And here's the thing. One of the... Uh, they gave me the supposed as a funny process, but they held out the possibility that if I went through this process, that maybe I could get the recommendation, you know, that maybe they would go ahead. And one of the steps was going to the Council on Excellence, which is a faculty body, and they, recommend, they recommended me for renewal. Okay. But then, then they went ahead and affirmed the, the, uh, the non-renewal. I mean, I think they really thought that they had scared, intimidated faculty enough that the faculty wouldn't you know, stand by me. And so one step they, they provided me to go ahead and win my contract renewal back was to go before this uh, or apply to this faculty body called the Council on Excellence, which recommends the administration who should get contract extensions. And I mean, they couldn't deny all my accomplishments, including getting a $40,000 grant from the Mellon Foundation to study the history of eugenics in Texas. I mean, that happened in the previous, you know, the past three years. You know, it's a three-year contract. So it didn't matter. None of that mattered. Uh, and so, yeah, my, my employment will be ended. It will be terminated as of May 15th. And so uh, during this process, they knew I had a lawyer. They knew I had representation from the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. They plowed ahead. And, uh, and so we have just this terrible record uh, for faculty. Uh, the other thing I might mention is that um, uh, three of the four officers, <laughs> three, uh, three, three of the fired faculty were officers of the Collin Faculty, uh, Texas Faculty Association local. So this is union busting too. Wow. And uh, a very clear example of union busting. So it's incredible to me that they have the the arrogance because usually in a situation like this, they would try to say that they would bring up some sort of bad review you got or or show that your your research has been lacking or something. They usually would try to find some excuse to hide the real reason, but but they're just out and out saying, no, we didn't want you talking about this, and you talked about it. Well, one thing one thing about the uh, 
mentioning the mask in class, I, I heard the associate dean made the claim that supposedly a couple or some or several students, the description kept changing. Uh, some students felt that they were uh, made to feel bad because I mentioned masks. I mentioned the the dangers of the the uh, pandemic killing people, you know, and that uh, resisting masks and vaccines were playing a role. And I could never get anything more specific than that. Sure. Then all the student reviews came in. And there was exactly one student who on evaluation mentioned that I was, he, that student thought that I was promoting masks too hard. And no one else, everyone said, you know, he was cool, you know, he's tolerant of everyone's viewpoints, best professor I've ever had. <laughs> so, so they essentially, if they're trying to use students as an excuse, they're giving yep. any individual student a veto power over someone's career, which makes it impossible. And I said, well, suppose I've got a student who uh, wants to insist that slavery had nothing to do with the Civil War, which is factually untrue. And he's got Confederate ancestors. Do I have to just say, well, you know, uh, that's uh, that sounds great. Okay, we'll just not challenge that. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what? you know, you have to teach people facts. Yeah, you know, I mean, where does this go if a student in a biology class doesn't want to hear about evolution because it challenges the the account of creation genesis? Is that next? I mean, it just really and, and it's just astonishing because North Texas, which is the Dallas Fort Worth area, has really become an epicenter of this. We had one principal at a high school not too far from here. Uh, the first African-American principal, he's in Grapevine, Texas. The, the George Floyd murder took place. He sent an email out to the school community, uh, you know, urging people to work towards, you know, better understanding of each other. And he referenced, you know, systemic racism. That got him fired. We have a, 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 a teacher, and another high school in Irving, Texas, who got fired just recently because she had a rainbow sticker in her class because so, she wanted LGBTQ students to know that was a safe place. We had, uh, we've, we're having books pulled off the of shelves here uh, that deal with LGBTQ themes, themes about racism. We had uh, one- they're, they're being pulled uh, off the shelves at the college? Not at the college yet, but at high schools across the area. And uh, there have been calls to remove books from public library shelves in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. And then um, at one point, uh, 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 so, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, this one school district, uh, they were giving uh, uh, basically a uh, in-service training for teachers. And... They're talking about controversial subjects and controversial controversial books and so on. And so the teachers were advised. So if you deal with something controversial, like the Holocaust, be sure you present both sides of the issue. What's the other side of the Holocaust? <laughs> mein Kampf? I, I'm not sure what. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Holocaust denial literature. Is that how you present the quote other right. side? And it just seems like Texas and Florida are in a competition to see who can be the most hostile to the First Amendment. And this is dangerous. And I'm afraid the more extreme things we see here, because those are two very large states, very large populations. I, I'm afraid what happens in here in Florida will happen elsewhere. What, what happens here doesn't stay here. Well, and what's what's interesting is what's happening to you is I think it's the inverse when it comes to the, the politics are inverted from what people typically hear about what's happening uh, on colleges, but it's it's the same idea of, and I think maybe it's maybe it's pushback, maybe it's it's the people you know where where you are feel like so much has been suppressed when it comes to anti-vaccine uh, arguments, anti-mask arguments, and so they need to feel like well now they have to push back and they need to. They need to force their opinion and, and stop people from from arguing against that. And, and that's I think that's the problem is when you can't allow open, rational discourse and allow people to disagree on a college campus, then then you have 
everyone just just resorting to we have to just shut down people from saying the other the other thing. So so I agree. Like you can't make every issue can't be well. You have to present both sides, but it also can't be we know we're right, and so therefore we're just going to shut down and prevent you from from saying the other side. I also think though that there are facts, you know, like uh, I mean, the, the Confederates said that they were leaving the Union when they drafted what are called ordinances of secession. They said they're leaving because they're afraid slavery is going to be abolished. The Confederates said it, right? Uh, uh, you know, the Holocaust happened. That's not a debatable issue. There aren't two sides of that issue. Uh, you can argue about what led to that moment, why German society accepted it, whatever, different theories of that, but it's factually true. Uh, the science is really heavily on the side of vaccines, and it's really heavily on the side of the effectiveness of mask wearing, particularly when people didn't have, uh, weren't widely vaccinated yet. It was, it was critical. Um, I think one thing that's asymmetrical when people talk about uh, right-wing viewpoints being suppressed versus, you know, what you would, might consider left-wing viewpoints. I would say this, that um, the asymmetry is the left really doesn't have an equivalent of Fox News. Uh, it, you know, I mean, the, the, in spite of the claims of some, CNN, MSNBC, MSNBC is aligned with moderate Democrats. They're certainly not aligned with the left. They're they're aligned with the Democratic Party Center. Uh, CNN does try to split the difference. They try, you know, they have right-wing voices on there. There's nothing like Fox News, and there's certainly nothing like groups like there's a group called Campus Reform, and uh, 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 you know that's a website. Uh, there, there, there. You have uh, these right-wing groups that are well-funded that actually are vigilantes who go after professors. And they put professors' pictures up. They have uh, something called professor watch list. And they gin up outrage. And that's what happened to Laura Burnett. Uh, she ended up on uh, uh, the campus reform website. And then Fox News covered it. And that's how a lot of these firings of professors happen. Uh, a website reports that Fox News picks it up. It got on the Fox News website. The state legislator who contacted our college president saw it on Fox. And then he called the president and said, well, what are you going to do about this left-wing professor? I don't think that kind of infrastructure uh, you know, exists. And if, it does, if there is one I'm not aware of, it certainly doesn't get the funding from you know multi-millionaires like like uh like uh, this this outrage machine aimed at college professors i don't know how we're going to continue teaching because what they've done is they have so poisoned the well uh in terms of the relationship between students and faculty at colleges that don't stand by their faculty right or left that anytime you step into the classroom, you look at the students, any student you look at, you could think, is this going to be the last one? Uh, this la is this going to be the last class I ever teach? Yeah. Is this the end of my career? What, what are the things that will offend this student that could destroy all the years of scholarship, all the investments? Uh, you know, in my research, my dissertation, all the effort I made to try to bring knowledge and wisdom, is it all going to be blown up because I somehow uh, irritated somebody somewhere about something? Yeah. Uh, that, that, that kills any risk-taking, uh, any exploration of new ideas, yep. any, any, uh, uh, recently uncovered facts, any recent interpretations. Uh, and, 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 it, and it's impossible too, because let's say theoretically, because of the panic of critical, about critical race theory. And let's say, because Florida is doing this already. They, 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 the law about critical race theory regarding public schools, let's say Texas then says that uh, uh, colleges can't teach anything that they call critical race theory, which really isn't critical race theory. It's any discussion of racism. Uh, you know, and by the way, Dan Patrick, Lieutenant Governor of Texas, says he wants to eliminate tenure for new faculty because of loony Marxists teaching things like critical race theory. Okay, so let's say we avoid the subject 
uh, students get an inferior education because they can't understand the country they live in, in the here and now. They don't know what created the, the world they lived in. And so I avoid talking about racism theoretically. What does that do to the victims of racism? Right. Uh, are, does that not injure them? Do, do, do they get a voice in what they want the, out of the classroom? Is it only aggrieved white people who say, I'm offended by the suggestion that white racism exists? Uh, uh, you know, so, so we're going to accommodate white people who don't want to talk about racism, but we get to ignore all the Latinx students and the Asian American students and all the African American students. They don't get to get the education they deserve and they pay for with their taxes right. and they pay for with their tuition. Right. I, and, I, it's, uh, it's impossible. Right. And, and, and right. And that's, this is the problem is when people have to start worrying about if you're a professor, if you're, it's happening to comedians now, if you're trying to exp express an opinion and in the back of your mind, you have to think, am I going to lose my job? Am I going to lose my career over expressing this? Now you, you have this box of acceptable discourse and you're not allowed to talk about the issues that actually matter. The issues that are actually on the edges, on the fringes, on people's minds that are actually causing controversy and stirring things up. And when you can't talk about that stuff, that's when I think you see violence arise because then people yeah. don't feel like they have a, they don't have a nonviolent avenue by which to talk about this stuff. Oh, I, I you know, if you're saying that uh, people who supposedly teach critical race theory, which again, let's be honest, uh, that's a, uh, something taught that was taught in law schools, right? That's a graduate program, law school. Uh, it did influence what people are, uh, professors at four-year universities teach. It, those professors write the textbooks. So there's an indirect effect, but it's not direct at all. And it's not what they say it is. You know, the, the, uh, one of the ideas of critical race theory is that race itself doesn't exist biologically, that it's a, it's a social convention, something we make up uh, based on a random set of traits. There's no scientific basis for race. So the idea they're trying to say critical race theory teaches white people that they're inherently bad. That's exactly the opposite of what critical race theory is. But anyway, um, if you tell people that people who teach about racism are anti-American, in these volatile times, that sets that puts a big target on their back, a literal target. We already have had, uh, you know, violence against <clears throat> trans people and gay people over the years, and now they're saying trans people are groomers. You know, they're accusing them of setting people up for pedophilia. Uh, you know, if you if you teach about the history of the LGBTQ community, and I made that part of my American history curriculum. Uh, am I going to be accused of, by mentioning the subject, mentioning Harvey Milk, the uh, city council member who was assassinated in San Francisco, will that cause me to be accused of, by someone unhinged of uh, being a groomer right. because I acknowledge the existence of a group? you know, then say they play part of the American pageant, they're part of the American past and they contributed, you know, uh, uh, it, it's, it is dangerous. And I think it does lead to violence. And we certainly saw the way lives were destroyed during McCarthyism where people were driven to suicide because they were hounded out of their livelihood and they couldn't find new work and their reputations were destroyed. They were shunned uh, socially. I think this is a terrifying time. Yeah, and and I can tell you, I people across the political spectrum feel the exact same way. There are conservatives who are afraid to to voice even just a moderate conservative position because they're afraid they'll get called a racist or a Nazi, and and people will try to get them fired. So it does it it happens. It's happening across the spectrum, and that's why I think organizations like Fire are so vital because because they will represent anyone regardless of their politics if if they feel like that their their rights are being violated. And so I I think they we we can't we I. I can't speak enough about fire and organization. There's, there's only a few out there that are like them. Yeah, I would say that we desperately need First Amendment purists. Yeah. I, 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 and I appreciate them. And the fact is that uh, uh, 
uh, you know, Laura communicated with them, Laura Burnett, and they did, they already won a settlement with Collin College over that. Uh, and that's what these oppressive institutions depend on. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, uh, first of all, I don't think public knows in general that most professors don't have tenure in the United States. First of all, about 70% of classes are taught by adjuncts, which means they're part-timers. They don't even have health insurance. They're economically very precarious. We've ha we have professors in this country who live in cars. They don't realize the level of uh, even poverty that people who have high student loan debts to at the same time live in, uh, how, how tenuous their employment is. Um, uh, even four-year colleges, uh, very few get tenure. So uh, there's a sense that we're overpaid. We only work nine months a year. That's a falsehood. So we've not been a very sympathetic workforce because of how we've been misrepresented in the, in, in, in the press. And uh, I, I can't think of any place traditionally where you could bring young people who are emerging into the adult world where you could talk about anything that uh, you know, all subjects were open for hearty discussion. Yeah. And if we create an era where there are forbidden ideas, forbidden topics of discussion, and where there are immediate consequences financially, personally, emotionally, for anyone who says, we, maybe we ought to consider this, then we have lost democracy. This is, this is where you know, <laughs> this must be uh, essential training for citizenship and for you know. And in fact, I wish, I wish the public schools K through twelve were more open. I wish the teachers didn't feel so bullied by uh, you know any <clears throat> the loudest voice in the room, the angriest voice in the room. Uh, I think that does a disservice. Uh, this is a complicated society. It's a diverse society. It's a society with uh, uh, vast problems with inequality uh, and and so many pro serious world-changing uh, crises like climate. That how is anyone going to be prepared for adulthood in this kind of atmosphere we're in right now? Yeah. Yeah, it, it's so true. So I, I know your your case against the college is active, so I don't want to ask you to go into any details about it, but what's the status of the case right now? We have filed our suit. It's in a federal court, and uh, the college this month will have to respond, and then we respond to the response, and it goes on. Eventually, uh, you know, we're asking for a jury trial, and we're asking a number of things, and and. I, I think that this has the potential, and this is in the lawsuit, I think this has the potential to be a precedent-setting case. We are, have pointed out a number of policies, such as there's a policy at Collin College that says that, uh, uh, you know, that you can't uh, say things that reflect negatively on the college. Uh, we're pointing out the unconstitutionality of that. The, the colleges, uh, the community colleges at least, belong to an association, and they cut and paste policies. So this could be like a set of dominoes falling in terms of unconstitutional policies, at least across Texas, if we get those knocked out. We're asking for those policies to be thrown out. Uh, that That's violating the First Amendment. We're trying to restore the concept of free speech to Texas. And hopefully, hopefully, eventually, that might affect public schools as well. You know, the K through twelve schools, uh, and we're we're willing to fight it and fight for it. And uh, uh, I can't praise my legal team enough. Uh, they they are highly skilled, uh, and uh, yeah, we're we want the policies changed. Uh, I'm asking for restoration of my position. I'm asking for compensation. Uh, my colleague, Suzanne Jones, is also represented by FIRE. She's also asking for those things. And so uh, uh, we'll see what happens. You know, 
Trials are unpredictable, the courts are unpredictable, but it's a cause worth fighting, even if it takes years. Hopefully it won't take that long, but we'll, we'll see. And the college already threw in the towel on one case with oh, Laura. Wow. Yeah, yeah, right, that's right. Well, Professor Phillips, I, I respect your your willingness and your courage in, in fighting this. Uh, I always tell people, go to thefire.org if you want to support an organization that is fighting for free speech, regardless of politics. If, if you are someone who believes in the First Amendment and believes in free speech, regardless of viewpoint, the FIRE is Foundation for Individual Rights and Education is the organization that's that's fighting for that. Uh, is there anywhere else people can go to support you, or, or do you just direct everyone to FIRE? <laughs> yeah, I would go there to keep up. I, I've been in the press a lot. I've been in, even in Rolling Stone magazine. So uh, <laughs> it's, it's odd. The arc of my career. I'm not an athlete. <laughs> I got interviewed, but I got interviewed by the NFL Network. Oh wow! Cowboys 49ers uh, rivalry. Okay. And I, I I'm certainly uh, not a musician. <laughs> and I ended up in Rolling Stone. So uh, you know, the, the, those weren't on my bucket list. But it's kind of interesting that I ended up. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so uh, follow the news. Uh, you know, I wouldn't mind if you bought my book, which I think is a good book and a fascinating one. And uh, uh, yeah, keep it keep informed and have the conversation going about free speech and the direction of free speech. I really think we're on a precipice, and I think we can either rescue free inquiry, we can rescue the ability to explore ideas, or we may lose them. And once freedoms are lost, it's extraordinarily hard to win them back. That, and and the cost of winning those sometimes are life and death, you know, that, that the people's lives are at stake when you fight for those lost freedoms. Well, Professor Phillips, I'll be following your story. I hope you'll keep me in the loop. And thank you so much again for your time. Absolutely.